<laughs> Good morning. <laughs> the tongue can be used for both evil and good. Some, sometimes good intentions are ruined by thoughtless words. At times, instead of helping people, we hurt them with crushing words. The tongue is dangerous because it is the organ that best reveals what we are actually thinking. It is dangerous because it is the one organ that can cause injury, lasting injury, without a blow being thrown. The tongue is like an invisible arrow that penetrates both muscle, tissue, and bone and lodges itself deep in our hearts. We know that saying, sticks and stones may what? Break my bones, but names or words will never... That's a lie. Sticks and stones can hit the outside, but where do go words go? Deep into the inner recesses of man. It's like invisible ninjas trained to aim at the heart. I like Chinese movies, by the way. Just saying, I don't know where they came from. Words may not hurt bones like a stick or a stone, but it can delve a crushing blow to the organ that really matters, the heart. It is the one thing that can cause hurt that will last for a lifetime. Sticks and stones can hurt for a short while. But the hurt of words will last for a long time. Job chapter 19 verse 2 says this. How long will you torment me? Speaking to his friends, his quote unquote counselors. And break me in pieces with your words. So much for close friends. We forget that our words can be like a boulder that is rolling down a hill, crushing everything in its path. The tongue is dangerous. The quicker we realize that, the quicker we will learn to restrain our tongues, and the quicker we will save those whom we love from the hurt of our words. Where hurtful words are spoken as a habit of life, there a malicious heart lies. Let that settle. Where hurtful words is put on display as a normative principle in that person's heart, life, there a heart that is wicked and deceived and malicious lies. There also the claim of faith is truly being challenged. What am I saying? If we, by the fruit of our lips, demonstrate that our hearts are hateful, hurtful, and malicious, then your faith is being questioned. In a time where words are many, especially in a time where social media has taken over and dominated our lives, it is no problem for us to shoot off words without thinking. Thoughtless words tearing down people, families, lies, accusations, 
quick responses that sets the stage for damage that you cannot hold back. Yes, we must be careful for those who will listen to us, but we speak when we type. So we need to be careful what we say in what we post. This doesn't mean that we don't point out falsity. It doesn't mean that we don't attack lies and false teachers. There is a place for that, and I believe the church is the rightful place where those things ought to take place. But everybody has become a social media warrior, a truth-sayer. Yet Jesus says, every idle word spoken will be worthy of judgment. I said last week that the entire section from verse 5b, the end of verse 5, right through to the end of verse 12, is one overlapping section. So there's going to be some measure of repetitiveness in the sermon. And that's fine. I think it's needful for us to hear. Jane's sustained negativity about the tongue provides a necessary backdrop for the wisdom that is provided in verse 13 through to 18. And when we get to that, I will show the connection between the two. So in the next two sermons, I'm going to look at the destructive nature of the tongue as it reveals the true intent of the heart. The danger of the tongue can be seen in four descriptions found in verse 6. Number one, it is a world of unrighteousness. Number two, it stains the body. Number three, it consumes the entire cause of life. And number four, it is kindled, kindled by hell. And we will look at those components individually. Now these four descriptions, they grow in intensity. The final one being diskindled by hell is the most shocking of them. But note, there are these four statements of the reality of the tongue are offset by two declarative statements. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire. Declarative statement number one. Number two, the tongue is said among our members. So he repeats the words, the tongue, to give us a marginal beginning. This is where what I'm talking about. The tongue is a fire. And then he explains what he means by the tongue is a fire. Look at the line following the, the first declarative statement. The tongue is a fire explained by a world of unrighteousness. Then the next declarative statement, the tongue is set among our members, explained by staining the whole body, setting on fire uh, the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. You see that? That is the internal construction that James provides to us. To us and that's helpful. So what I've done is I've split the verse into two. First declarative statement, second declarative statement. That's not the outline of the sermon. It's very simple. James wants us to know truths about the tongue. So I'm going to deal with the first part first. The tongue is a fire explained by a world of uh, unrighteousness. The tongue is a fire characterized by a world of unrighteousness. And then next week we will look at the tongue is set amongst our members characterized by its Activity. So here are the two things that I will cover over the next two weeks. The tongue is characterized by what, re, by what it represents, and then the tongue is characterized by its activity. So 
This morning, I'm going to look at the representative nature of the tongue. The last three we will cover in quick succession next week. So I'm going to, my sermon is short for next week, but since I have a week, I might as well fill the hour. So um, I, will, I, will, I will do justice to my time. So let's give attention to the reality that the tongue is a fire demonstrated by a heart of wickedness. <clears throat> now you will note in the beginning of verse 16 that James makes an absolutely clear statement. I don't think it's, it's confusing. It is absolutely brilliantly clear. And it actually clarifies what has been said before. Look at the end of verse 5b. Uh, or five, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a great fire, or small as some translations say. The tongue is a fire. So all that I've just been speaking about, James says, the destructive nature of the tongue of the fire is equal to a tongue. He moves from a simile in grammar to a metaphor. He's saying, no, the tongue is a fire. The construction here indicates that the tongue is equal to a fire. You can put an equal to sign instead of the, the verb is. In other words, there is an equalitative sense that it that is in view. Just like the fire destroys and is dangerous in and of itself, so the tongue destroys and is dangerous in and of itself. That is the point that James is making absolute clarity clarity you cannot confuse the two things the tongue is an unstoppable force it's a weapon that cannot be contained it's a danger that lurks for every opportunity to mow down anything in its path the image of the fire is important because James wants his readers to understand the devastating results of the fire and equal that to the tongue. So by using this metaphor, he brings to mind the scorching danger of a fire, a flame. Now, I've burnt myself quite a few times. I lighted a fire in the U.S. Uh, they use some sort of liquid, and I didn't know that it burns very quickly, and I lost some hairs on my face and my arms. Literally, my arm was clear, and I'm a hairy guy. I've burned myself, and I, I felt the stench of fire. The point is not so much the, the initial burn. It's the results of that fire, the flame, the lasting impact that, le that it leaves behind he says, that's the tongue. You may burn yourself today, but a week later, you still feel that burn. It's lasting. It is shocking to see how many warnings we have about the tongue in the Bible. Go do a Google search on it. If you have Bible software, just type in tongue. Thousands of references that relates to the tongue. It's interesting that God doesn't warn us about our hands, our feet, and our head because our head can be used as a weapon as well. I've seen some of you colored guys. 
But it tells us a lot about our tongue. Guard your heart. Be careful how you speak. Be considerate and have gracious words on your tongue. Yet, it is the one thing that is often ignored in the believer's life. It is interesting that James does not say that the tongue is a spark that can cause tremendous amount of uh, danger. doesn't say that, right? He says it's a fire, it's a flame, it's an existing uh, force that needs to be dealt with. This provides impetus to what I said last week. James doesn't say that it is the ignition to a fire. No, it is a fire. What this implies then is that the words that is found on the lips of people is not like a spark that begins a great fire, but is a fuming, blazing, consuming fury in and of itself. You have a world-destroying flame behind your teeth. Now, I can, I can understand that there's a lot of confessing that happened after last week's sermon. And I hope that you understand that confessing in church means nothing if it's not practiced at home. James is not concerned with intention, but reality. Show me the flame on your tongue and I will show you the fire in your heart. Why fire though? Sure, there's an image of destruction and there's a, a vision that James is giving us of the net consequences of a fire. But James is a Jew. He writes with a Jewish understanding about the tongue and the flame. Go to Proverbs chapter 26. I'm going to fill in the gaps that is not present in the text since we are not Jews and we don't have that resident knowledge. And I said on Wednesday that this sermon will deal with that. And so I will do that. I'm going to fill in the missing parts. Why James connects the flame to a fire, sorry, the tongue to a fire. And there's a deeper reality that is in view. So I'm going to start generally and then start to narrow the, the discussion down to one specific uh, chapter in the book of Proverbs and see how James copies that and brings it into his discussion. But let's begin in Proverbs 20, chapter 26, verse 20. For the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling sees. Now, when we think of fire, we may be thinking of screaming, you know, the flaming fury of a madman. And yet, take note what it says. Where there is a lack of wood, the fire goes out. What is that analogy telling you? Where there's no fuel, there is no fire. What is the fuel? He tells us. And where there is no, you see that word whisper is actually quarreling. Take note of that. Where there is no quarreling or grumbling as a habit and ongoing practice, there quarreling or fighting ceases. Where there is no complaining, there fighting 
ceases. Ongoing complaining and quarreling results in what? Fuel for the fire. The less we speak, the better it is. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, sure. James, let us be what? Slow to speak. Look at verse 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. This expands on uh, verse 20. As fire needs wood... To burn, so strife and contentious uh, contention needs verbal combat, needs quarreling. In other words, where there is a verbal war, there is contention and their strife exists. Where quarreling is few, their verbal combat ceases. It's pretty obvious, right? If you just keep your mouth, you won't continue fighting. But because you fuel the flame, what happens? You burn one another. Even Paul captures this. Let us be careful lest we what? Consume one another. That's a fire analogy. But note in verse 22. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. I love this. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And that analogy we may not fully understand. The, the, the words of the morsel is literally, it's someone who eats quickly. Now I have a child that, that used to do that. He's not as good at that as, as he used to be. But you put the food down and when you look up, it's gone. He's just like... That's the idea here. The words of the whisperer is consumed quickly. You can't draw it back. It's absorbed with instant results. And that is explained by uh, the next phrase. They go down into the inner parts. It's no longer on the tongue. It's no longer external to the person. It disappears into the inner parts. It cannot be brought up again. And that's the point. The words, the whispers of this fool hurts somebody internally. The analogy that, that uh, Solomon is picturing here is that when a word is spoken, the person may not want to consume it, but it is consumed by him. It doesn't lie in the ears, it doesn't lie in the mind, it goes to the heart and it damages them. It hurts them. Who's the person that Solomon is describing here? It's the fool. And the fool in the Old Testament is someone that is far from God. Somebody that doesn't know God. Somebody who does not submit to God's rules and instructions. Notice in verse 23, like the glaze covering the earthen vessel and fervent, uh, are fervent lips with an evil heart. Do you note the switch there? He goes from the general to the more specific. What causes a person to speak nicely? That is the glazer on a useless vessel. He covers the vessel with nice words, but right in the heart, right at the heart of it, you have an evil heart. So what is the author saying? That 
Sometimes he can make you seem, uh, make it seem like he's a nice person, but at, at the heart he is evil. What Solomon does is he connects heart with lips. He connects the unseen reality, which is the heart of a person, with the hearing reality, the outcome of the heart, which is on the lips of a person. Understand that James has this passage in mind as he writes chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I will prove that in a moment. See, we don't have the understanding of the connection between tongue and heart. As a Gentile, as a pagan, as one who was not born in a Jewish culture, we don't know that connection exists. James does. He doesn't have to explain it. And so he just moves on. He mentions it and passes right past it. Yet from a Jewish perspective, when the tongue is mentioned, the heart is in view. When the heart is in view, the whole person is in view. The heart describes the quality of the individual. If your heart is wicked, who are you? A wicked person. If the tongue is wicked, what does it say about the heart? The heart is wicked. Look down at verse uh, chapter 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Why does that sound familiar? Ever read through James? Yes. James chapter 4. The exact same phrase appears. Why is that significant? Because contextually, James is thinking, and if you go to, let's go over to James. We'll come back to uh, Proverbs later on. Go back to James chapter 4. Take note at chapter 4 and verse 13. Verse 1 is in view as well, but I'll get back to that. This is still in the context, context of speech. Come now, you will say today, today and tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place and spend a year or, uh, there and trade and uh, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow is uh, or what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. James borrows the idea from um, Proverbs. And correlates it to what he says in James, um, in his uh, book here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not your passions within you? Where does it come from? The heart. James knows very well that the problem is the heart and not so much the tongue. We will see later that the tongue can only demonstrate what the source is in reality. The fire analogy is not uncommon in the Jewish uh, uh, culture or in the Hebrew language. So what is James saying here in verse 6 when he says the tongue is a fire? He says that your heart is made manifest by the words of your mouth. And then he will illustrate that by the next phrase. So let's look at that. The, dis- the depiction of the tongue is not only that it is a fire, that it is dangerous, and that it is a flaming fury, but also it is a world of unrighteousness. 
The danger of the tongue is seen in what it represents. A world of unrighteousness. What do we do with that? What does it mean? This is a profound statement and it's difficult to make sense of, but I'm going to try my best to explain it. I don't have the grammatical ability to explain all the nuances here, so I'm going to explain the, what I know. Firstly, it is conjunctive, this statement, in that it is connected to the previous thing. Now, the um, scribes who translated this, they picked up that the tongues of fire is connected to the world of righteousness, and they put a semicolon in between it. Now, we don't have that in our translations, but it would be helpful if it was there. And it works similar to a semicolon in English. Um, I'm going to the shop. You could put a comma there. You could say uh, semicolon, um, uh, getting food, socks, a Mother's Day gift. And you're explaining why you've gone to the shop. And that's how this is working. The tongue is a fire, and I'm going to explain what it means, a world of unrighteousness. Now, to us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. How does a world of righteousness explain that the tongue is a fire? Remember the idea of the tongue is a fire. The point is it is dangerous. Now he's explaining why it is in why it is dangerous. It provides clarity to the danger of the tongue. So, so firstly, it is conjunctive, meaning it points back to the fire. And then secondly, it is representative. What does it mean that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness? Now this phrase can mean this. A world of unrighteousness, as you have it in the translations, but also it could mean a world concerning unrighteousness or a world for unrighteousness or a world about unrighteousness. And the last, they all say the same thing. May have different prepositions, but they all say the same things. Now I'm going to break it down even smaller. I'm going to deal with the different components and then we'll put it back together. The word world is sometimes used to describe everything on the globe. Then it's used to describe the people in this world. And then it is used to describe the system that stands opposed to God. It is the last one that is in view here. It is a world that stands opposed to God. It is a system that stands for unrighteousness. Now, what about this word unrighteousness? It means an act that violates or stands against a standard, a rule, or a law. It is an expressed wickedness. It is important to note that this word is never used of believers. Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The two are connected of men. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.10 where Paul speaks about the unrighteous deception or wicked deception in that time. In many cases, unrighteousness is a synonym to sin or for sin. The two are interchangeable as in Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful toward their unrighteousness and remember their sins no more. Sins and righteousness is in parallel. And you see it in 1 John 1.9 as well. He is faithful to forgive us our sins and, and 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, parallel. Sins and unrighteousness are one thing. Of the believer, it says this. Romans chapter 6, 13. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness. The exact same grammatical construction, yet it is translated differently. It is instruments for unrighteousness. And so if you take that in mind and try to understand what James is saying here, then he's saying that this is a world that is not governed by God or God's truth. It is a world that suppresses God's standard. It is a world that is defined and described by its rebellion or rebelliousness against God's holiness and righteousness. Now let's put the pieces together. James is saying, That the tongue is a fire defined or described by a system of unrighteousness. A system that stands for defying God. That violates the very standard of God. Is he talking about the tongue? Yes, but more. Let's read the text again. The tongue is a fire. That is, its demonstration of um, danger and destruction is manifested in its words. Why is it so dangerous? Because it is a world that is wicked. It is a world that is opposed to God. Now, is he just saying that the tongue is a world in and of itself? I don't believe so. Because the tongue is representative of what? The heart. The tongue is a fire, a world for concerning about a violation or or the standard of God. The grammar suggests that this little word, the preposition of, expresses representation. The tongue is not full of unrighteous in and of itself. The tongue represents something that is unrighteous, which is the heart of people. Listen to the NET translation. The tongue is a fire with an exclamation mark. Love that. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. That is the best representation of the nuance of this verse. The tongue represents a world of wickedness that is found in your heart. Let's think about that. The tongue, when it spews out anger, when it spews out wrath, when it spews out hurtful words, what is it actually saying about the heart? All those things come from the wickedness of people's hearts. What this means then is this, that God has given the tongue to demonstrate the wickedness of our hearts. There is one thing that God has given as a means to display the rebellion against God, and it is the tongue. Now sure, we can display our sin in a variety of different ways, but yet God chose the tongue as the prime candidate to show that you hate the standard of God and you hate His righteousness. Let me restate it this way. The fiery display of the tongue reveals a world that stands opposed to the righteousness of God. The tongue shows that the world 
that it relates to, the world that it represents, the world that it stands for, is a world that has no problem breaking the standards, the laws, and the rules of God. In other words, the tongue is is the representative member that shows you do not love God. Why the tongue? Sure, it shows representativeness. It shows that the heart is in view. But why did God choose the tongue? Romans 10 verse 9 gives us a hint. For the heart we believe. But what happens next? With the mouth or the tongue we confess. Why? Why is confession necessary? Because the confession of Christ as Lord and the God raised him from the dead tells you something about what? That change is taking place in the heart of the individual. This is why at the end of the age when Christ is exalted, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Why? Because the tongue shows rebelliousness against God. But God will crush that stubbornness of heart by causing every tongue to bow down. The tongue represents the heart and the heart shows the state that you are in. That is what James is after. When you have words of anger always on your tongue, words of fury always on your tongue, when it's a habit of life for you to mow down people with no concern for who they are, for the image-bearing quality that they have, for Christians, if that is who you are, I am really concerned for your salvation because James is not describing a believer here. The tongue reveals and manifests a world that is unrighteous, which is the heart. Turn over to Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. Again, I want to prove that this is a Jewish way of talking about the individual. And you may remember these words because it is echoed in Romans chapter 3, for there is no truth in their mouth and the innermost self is destruction. You see the connection between the innermost self and the, um, um, the mouth, that there's the innermost self is the psyche, the soul, the mind of the individual, and that is demonstrated on their mouth in that they reject the truth. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. In other words, their hearts are filled with death. Not a believer. Not a child of God. Go over back to Proverbs 26. Take note the connection between the inner man and the heart. Verse 22, the words of the whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down to the inner parts of the body. Uh, Verse 23, like um, 
like uh, the glaze covering an earthen vessel uh, of fervent lips with an evil heart. You can see the connection between evil heart and, and the, the net result of that. Verse 24, whoever hates um, disguises himself with his lips. In other words, his heart is already hateful and harbors the seed in his heart. The heart demonstrates what it is by means of the lips. Verse 25, take note of this. He, when he speaks graciously, that is, have nice words, believe him not. Why? For there are seven abominations in his heart. You know the man by what's on his lips. What are these seven abominations? Go back to Proverbs 6, I believe it is. Don't believe him. You contrast him because his words are deceitful. <clears throat> Verse 16. There are six things that Yahweh hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Count how many relate to the tongue. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. Four or five, depending on what you do with verse 19. All relate to the tongue, which is demonstrative of the heart of that individual. His heart is wicked, and because his heart is wicked, the entire person is compromised. Hence you have hands, tongue, heart, plans, and mind. The tongue is the, the clearest expression of the wicked state of the rebellious heart. So when he's saying tongue, he means... When he's saying that the, 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 the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, he's saying that the tongue is representative of who you are. When we limit James to just saying that the tongue in, in and of itself is a world of unrighteousness, if, if only the tongue is in view and we don't bring in the heart, then we miss the Jewishness of James's writing. James makes a case for a compromised heart in this one statement. There is sufficient historical and uh, cultural uh, and contextual evidence that he's speaking about this in a Jewish sense. What is James saying? Check your tongue. And you'll know your heart. Fiery words on your tongue reveals exactly who you are. If the heart is fuming with flames, then the tongue will manifest that wickedness. 
What James is highlighting here is that the tongue will magnify, elucidate, or make manifest the wickedness that already lies in the heart of that individual. If James is separating the tongue from the entire person, if he's separating the tongue from the heart, then he will go against all, all Jewish understanding of the person. Jesus makes a clear connection between the tongue and the heart. So with this rich history and understanding behind James's writing, yeah, I think it's easier for us to understand the weight of what he's saying. This is who you are. The reason you have fiery tongues is because of your, the state of your hearts. We as Gentiles often speak in terms of separation. We speak of the tongue, and then we speak of the heart, and then we speak of the mind, and we speak of the person. In the Jewish mind, that when an organ is used, the entire person is, is represented in that organ. Thus, to emphasize the tongue without its relationship to the heart and the unity of the person is to miss James's point. And that is my point, that the entire person is in view. The tongue is an indicator of what is present in the heart. The inner recesses of the heart is made manifest on the tongue. So do not tell your wife, I didn't mean to say that, because you did. Your heart wanted that to come out and your tongue complied and it came out. Do not ever say, oh, that just slipped because that is a lie. We need to watch our tongues. And we can because Paul says we need to have words that are seasoned with grace. That's the expectation. What's the lesson? The tongue can only reveal what is true of its source. And this will become more clearer uh, the further we go on. The tongue speaks of its source. The danger of the tongue is that it will unleash a world of wickedness on its hearers. Now think about that. And understand that the, the commentaries take the world of iniquity or the world of unrighteousness as speaking about the entire world. You know what James has done? He says, you know what? The sin of the entire world can be wrapped up in the illustration of your tongue. That's harsh. You, as an individual, deserve the wrath and the judgment of God just because of how you use your tongue. Because the tongue demonstrates that you, by yourself, are a world of rebellion against God. That's the bad news of the gospel. And some people say there is no theology in James. Well, I don't think so. Just dig a little bit deeper. James weighs them down with this reality that they are far from God. So you cannot be a teacher if this is what your tongue says about you. Where's the good news? Well, he slowly works his way up to it. We have to get through 13 and 18 to get there. But let me give you the good news. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Oh, that's a smack in the face. He's still on this issue 
of the bad use of the tongue. Clearly they are not believers. James draws that conclusion. You, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So if you are a friend of the world, where are you in reality? You are at war with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to, to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you not suppose that it uh, is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives grace. Sorry, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the command. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's a call for repentance. That's a very Old Testament call for repentance. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to to you cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is James saying? Repent. That is all a call for a change of heart, for a change of mind, for a change of life. If you have not submitted yourselves to God, you are opening yourselves up to the devil. So in other words, if you submit yourself to God, you will be resisting the devil. And so he says, come to him as Lord. That's the gospel in the book of James. I've heard so many guys say, there is no gospel, no Jesus in the book of James. Well, Luther, look a little bit deeper. It is there. Why does James tell us about the wickedness of our hearts? Firstly, he's protecting the position and the practice of teaching. And secondly, he's showing these Jews in the synagogue, you are not believers. You need to be saved. Is this representative of who you are? If your tongue is equal to what James says here, a world of iniquity, rebelliousness against God, then you need to do what James calls you to. Repent. Submit yourselves to God. Draw to Him and He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to You for the grace that You have given, for the truth that is revealed. Father, there are those here who overlook the use of their tongues and do not see the injury that they cause to others. We pray that you would bring conviction. There are those whose heart is on evident display, but they are blinded to their own deception. We pray that you would bring conviction there, Lord. You are the one who condemns, but you're also the one who provides grace. We ask that you would draw those who need to be saved. And that you will change the heart of those who need to be sanctified. Lord, these are hard, word, hard words to hear, but you, we pray that you would use it. Use it in our lives that we may be changed. Changed in the way that we think, changed in the way that we speak, 
and change in the way that we respond towards one another. Help us to demonstrate that our hearts have been changed by God's grace. That our words would indeed be seasoned with that grace. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your patience with us. So we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.